Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Heidi J. Dalton, MD, FCCM, Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at the Phoenix Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Dalton is with us today to discuss extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Thank you for being here today, Heidi. Privileged to be uh, asked, Margaret. So, Heidi, ECMO has been around for 30, 40 years uh, and has clearly evolved considerably over that time. Um, would you start by giving us a little history of ECMO? Uh, sure. I think probably the most um, earliest recorded use of uh, ECMO was in an adult who had been injured in a motorcycle uh, accident and was placed on uh, what at that time was the only type of oxygenator. They had a bubble oxygenator. It was about the size of a uh, truck tire. And he was placed on a bypass circuit for several days and actually survived. And there's some very impressive pictures of him, you know, with all the equipment that's filling an entire room being supported at that time. And about at the same uh, period in time, um, Bob Bartlett and some other folks were looking at use of modified forms of bypass techniques in uh, neonates who had lung failure. And, um, you know, the sort of anecdotal story that goes along with that is that Dr. Bartlett and his crew were, uh, I think, in San Diego then, or in California, and um, they got called to the nursery about some baby that had been actually, um, her mom had been probably an illegal alien. The baby was born, had severe, what we would now know as pulmonary hypertension. The mom had fled, and so the baby was sort of abandoned there at this hospital and was dying of respiratory failure, and they called Dr. Bartlett and said, hey, you know, aren't you guys doing some stuff in the lab that may help this baby? And so, you know, back then they were sort of the head of the IRB at that particular center as well, so they rapidly wrote some little um, compassionate use thing, cleaned off their equipment, brought it in, and supported this baby um, for three or four days with ECMO, and she survived. And um, it's always a treat uh, when she comes back to some of the annual extracorporeal life support meeting. She's probably in her late 30s, early 40s now and has three kids of her own. So, you know, from those times, ECMO really got rolling in the newborn population for kids that had meconium aspiration, group B sepsis, um, and for kids that had uh, primary pulmonary hypertension after they were born. And with that sort of experience then, uh, other centers started using it in their nurseries as well. And then you know, that led to a couple of the randomized trials of um, ECMO uh, in the newborn population versus conventional therapy. Probably the most famous of those is the one uh, run out of Boston, um, which showed that ECMO was superior in terms of outcome to patients that had conventional uh, mechanical ventilation. Uh, but there was a lot of outcry because they were randomizing patients and um, you know, there's a big uh, publications in the Boston Globe and the National Enquirer and all these other things about how, you know, the Boston hospitals that were participating in this study were, you know, letting babies die without some support thing that could have helped them. And it created a lot of uh, turmoil that uh, Pearl O'Rourke, actually, who was the PI on that conference or on that uh, study, actually was embroiled in. And then uh, the U.K. also did a randomized trial of ECMO in the neonatal population, which was positive in favor of ECMO. So in the neonatal population, it became very well 
accepted. And then as some of us started using it in neonates, um, we're like, well, gosh, why can't we use it in older kids uh, as well? And so it got trialed out in older kids as well and has sort of become accepted therapy, although truthfully there's not been a successfully done randomized control trial of ECMO in pediatric critical care patients versus conventional therapy. And I think most people know that um, in the adult world, uh, ECMO was fairly well shunned based on some early studies that showed that it had no benefit over conventional therapy, and there was a lot of problems with those studies. But uh, over the last few years, if you want to look at the group that is increasing in terms of application of extracorporeal techniques, it's definitely uh, the adult population that's finally caught in fire and taken off. And there's been you know, a recently published randomized trial out of the UK again showing that ECMO was uh, more efficient in terms of outcome without neurologic damage at six months than uh, conventional therapy, and that's really bolstered the adult population. So things have obviously evolved considerably over the last um, two or three decades. What are the current indications for ECMO uh, in infants and in children? So this is probably the question that I get asked the most. You know, what are your criteria for ECMO? And we have this patient with this blood gas or this set of circumstances. Would you put them on or not? And I guess one of the more complicating things that's happened with ECMO over time is that, you know, in the early days, we actually did have some fairly strict criteria that we went by. Um, you know, we either used the oxygenation index, which is, you know, calculated by taking your mean airway pressure times the amount of oxygen you're on and then dividing that by your PaO2. And if your OI was greater than 40, that was historically correlated with uh, poor outcomes, so people would use that as a criteria for putting on patients. If your OI was between 25 and 40, meant you were pretty sick, and if the patient wasn't getting better, you should think about it. And if your OI was less than 25, most people thought that you'd recover and you wouldn't need it. By the same token, uh, the alveolar uh, oxygen gradient, AADO2, people used to use that as well, again, mainly in, in neonates. If you had an AADO2 of greater than 640, that was thought to be um, indicative of poor outcome, and so people would use that as a criteria. Um, in the adult population, folks have used uh, something called the Murray score, which is both a compilation of how much PEEP you're on, what your compliance is, how many quadrants of disease are on your X-ray, and uh, and your uh, overall oxygenation status. But probably the worst thing that's happened to ECMO over the last few years is that, truthfully, we've broken all these rules about who could go on and who couldn't go on. And so almost every case now is just a case-by-case -case basis. You know, back in the early days, you know, we didn't put on kids with burns, for instance. We didn't put kids on as a bridge to transplant. We didn't put on kids with arrest. We didn't put on kids with neurologic compromise. You know, I remember back when I was a resident, which, you know, wasn't too far in the dark ages, um, you know, uh, it was very controversial about whether you would put on a baby with Down syndrome uh, on ECMO. Well, now people don't think twice about that. Mm -hmm. So um, now almost everything we do is on a case-by-case -case basis. And as we have sort of pushed the envelope more and more, we also have sort of found out that a lot of the reasons why we excluded kids in the past haven't turned out to be so um, true. That is, there are many studies now of kids that have had burns, for instance. You think, oh, my God, you have to heparinize these patients. They're all going to bleed to death or they're all going to die of infection. And that's not been true. 
You know, uh, when I first started um, as a fellow in Pittsburgh, you know, cardiac kids, oh, we didn't put them on as a bridge to transplant because, you know, you could only run ECMO for two weeks and you couldn't get a heart within two weeks, and so they were all going to die anyway. Well, we now know that, you know, uh, using ECMO as a bridge to transplant or as a uh, bridge to some of the other VAD-type devices that are coming out now is extremely successful. And so we've broken a lot of our same uh, rules. I do think that for respiratory failure, the oxygenation index is a good thing to look at as a trending tool. I don't think you can take any one moment in time. But, you know, if you're, if you're on the oscillator and you're on a mean airway pressure of 35 or 40 and, you know, a lot of oxygen and you're still having signs of end organ damage, you know, I would consider that sort of a, a time you should, you should think about it. The, the other thing that's happening, which is going to complicate things even more, is as new technology has come down the pike in the last couple of years, ECMO is so much simpler and potentially safer to do than it was in the past that there are now folks that are out there saying, well, with all the associated complications that we know mechanical ventilation uh, instills, should we be using these little oxygenators that you can just, you know, plug in a couple of percutaneous cannulas, take a little bit of flow up from the patient, and not even worry about putting them on the ventilator or extubating them very rapidly from mechanical ventilation. So all of this stuff is kind of things that would be considered heresy a few years ago. But the field is now moving so fast that um, I think the major charge that most of us that are involved in this field have now is to figure out what are the best patient populations and when we, should, uh, when we should be implementing it. The one thing that we have learned is that waiting until the patient is in multi-organ failure and on death's door rather than implementing it earlier in their course is not necessarily um, the good thing. And I think now people are more interested in applying ECMO earlier in their course than they were in years past. I don't think many of us are still using ECMO rather than intubating somebody. Uh, but uh, it is interesting that at conferences now, that is a topic that comes up. So with all of these improvements in technology and potentially expanded uh, indications for ECMO, I mean, currently there are a limited number of centers around the country and uh, probably around the world that have the ability to do ECMO. Should we be looking to expand the number of ECMO centers or the availability of ECMO? Oh, what a, what a horrible question. Right. <laughs> uh, well, um, yes and no. I think one of the concerns that uh, those of us who have a lot of experience in ECMO have is that because of the fact that this equipment is fairly easy to get and it's fairly easy to set up and initiate, uh, especially since the uh, flu epidemic in 2009, which really spurred a lot of interest in the use of ECMO in the adult population at least, um, every Tom, Dick, and Harry center wants to do it. And there is some concern about that because it isn't as easy to do as what you might um, anticipate in just turning on a pump and watching the blood go around and around. You know, a lot. Of, we just did a, a study of some, some centers that I'm involved with, and you know, 80% of the kids have complications of some form, which are mainly bleeding and thrombosis. So, there is a steep learning curve. And if you look, for instance, at the criticisms of the UK adult randomized trial of ECMO, 
um, one of the things that has uh, fostered a lot of controversy from that study is that the patients that were transferred, they only had one adult ECMO center that they used in this study in England, and all the patients that were randomized to the ECMO group got transferred to that center. And the outcome for the patients in that center, whether they ended up going on ECMO or not, was very good compared to conventional centers. So one of the comments that a lot of um, editorials have made is, well, does that only prove that if you are an ECMO center, you're used to taking care of patients with very severe respiratory failure and potentially do you do it better than another place? And it doesn't necessarily prove that it's the technique, it's the care that you get um, and the ability to say, okay, we've run through our armamentarium of stuff we're going to do for you in the best possible circumstances, and now you've failed all those things, and yes, we have ECMO available, and we're going to put you on it, and your outcome is going to be better. So I don't think the answers are known for that in terms of the pediatric, uh, in terms of the pediatric realm, but I do think um, there is a concern that with ECMO now being so available that if people are using it inappropriately or they don't know what they're doing or they have to go through the steep learning curve part, that it's actually going to end up shooting the whole field in the foot because the outcomes aren't going to be very good. By the same token, there is also a very um, interesting publication I saw just a couple months ago uh, in which they, these authors were advocating for uh, a conversation about whether there should be ARDS centers of uh, excellence or uh, play, regionalization of such things that are available, like you know, heart transplants, liver transplants, uh, and ECMO. And so one of the things that I think is going to become a point of conversation over the next few years is, okay, should everybody have this, or should you regionalize it so that the patients that are getting it, since they still are a relatively small portion of the population, um, get uh, transferred to those centers uh, who then have more experience with this type of technique. And if you are a believer in the theory that, you know, um, high volume equates to better care and better outcome, would that be a better way to go? And I don't really have an answer to that type of thing, but that is certainly another area of uh, discussion. And the part that plays into that as well is with this new miniaturized stuff that we have available now, the ability to go and pick up somebody and put them on ECMO or bring them back to your center after they've been placed on ECMO someplace else is a lot easier to do than it was uh, in years past. So that the ability to transport patients to you know, higher levels of care or whatever is also out there. Now, the other thing that goes against uh, what I've just been saying, though, is there is all of a sudden this huge surge an interest in ECMO throughout the world. So, um, you know, for the next few years, I happen mm -hmm. to be the conference planner for the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. And, you know, we just got done with one conference in Seattle. We're planning another one for Stockholm. We had our first Euro-ELSO meeting last year in Rome, and we had over 800 people. Mm -hmm. We're planning an Asia-ELSO meeting in October. There's a South America-ELSO chapter that's just getting started. You know, we're asked to go to... Uh, you know, Pakistan and India and Japan and Taiwan. So there is this uh, complete increase in interest in use of this technology. But I think many of us are really worried about 
the training that people that are going to use it are receiving because we're asked to do many training courses and we're trying to develop web uh, webinars and stuff like that to help with that. But I think there is a big concern. It's not like you can just open a box and pretend that you know how to do it, which is, I think, um, sometimes what some of our colleagues may think, oh, it's not that hard to do. But, you know, it is still uh, a very risky procedure, and it should be done with a lot of uh, care and uh, and training. So that's a long-winded <laughs> answer to yeah, your but, question. But. but thoughtfully put. Can you talk a little bit about the technology and the techniques that are used to put someone on ECMO uh, and the, I gather that the improvements in the technology are at least a significant part of what has led to the expanded interest in providing ECMO um, at many new sites. Yeah. So in the old days, you know, which were two years ago, um, <laughs> uh, almost every center used a semi-occlusive roller head pump that was, you know, borrowed out of the OR and adapted and a silicone membrane lung, which was just a piece of um, silicone that had uh, a wire mesh in it that was all wrapped up in a cylinder, and then you'd build it into the circuit, and you would drain the blood from the patient, and the pump would uh, push it along through the oxygenator, and then you'd either cool the blood or rewarm it, whatever you wanted, and then give it back to the patient. Now, those type of devices uh, required a gravity siphon, so you always had the patient above the level of the uh, of the tubing and of the pump itself, and the roller head pump generates a lot of positive pressure as it pushes blood forward so that if you accidentally kinked the arterial side of the circuit or the circuit returning blood to the patient, you know, you could blow out connectors and rupture the circuit and cause blood to go all over the room and make very dramatic pictures. Mm, sounds what's like happened a mess. now is, <laughs> is uh, I've got some if you want them, I'll send them. <laughs> uh, but um, what has happened over the last couple of years is centrifugal pumps who you know, generate uh, suction actually on the venous limb and then just return whatever is uh, drawn into the pump head back to the patient, but don't really generate a lot of positive pressure on the um, uh, inlet side to the patient. Those have become much more refined. The early versions of those created a lot of heat and they caused a lot of blood trauma. So for using them in kids, they caused such bad hormolysis, they didn't work very well. But these new ones have um, very small pump heads. They are much less uh, uh, harmful to blood elements. They're much easier to use. You can set them up and prime them in like two minutes. And then the other thing that probably has revolutionized things even more is uh, the refinement of hollow fiber type oxygenators. So the problem with the silicone lung, even though it worked great for gas exchange, is it's very high resistance to blood flow. So you had to put a lot of pressure in there to get the blood through it. And as the blood would circulate through all these um, you know, coils of the silicone membrane, there'd be stagnant areas there so you could get clotting, and that caused you to have to use more heparin, which potentially could cause more bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing would last. It would last for several weeks or whatever, um, but it was fairly cumbersome to prime, you know, to get all the air bubbles out and stuff before you started using it. The hollow fiber devices that we have now, you can prime in like two minutes. It's very simple. <laughs> And the early versions were really plagued by developing plasma leak over time. So you'd use them for, oh gosh, I have experiences where I've used them for six hours. I have experiences where I've used them for an hour. And I have experiences where I've used the old ones for 
a few days, but eventually they would all get this sort of plasma leak and there'd be all this like beer foam looking stuff that would um, leak out of the oxygenator and then you'd have to change it out. The new oxygenators that are out um, in the U.S., the only one that's currently available is the uh, Yastra Quadrox made by McKay, um, is, uh, you know, they're very long lasting. They can go for weeks at a time (laughs) and they don't have this problem with plasma leakage and they're very low resistance to blood flow. So, Unlike the rollerhead days where you had to generate a lot of you know, positive pressure to push blood through the oxygenator, these things work so efficiently that you can stick in an arterial venous shunt, for instance, just put an arterial line in somebody's femoral artery and a return line in their vein, and if the patient has an adequate blood pressure, they can actually push blood through the oxygenator even without a pump. <laughs> so you know, those two things uh, together have really made these circuits a lot smaller than they were before, which means you need to expose the patient to less priming volume of blood. Uh, You potentially cause less inflammatory response. Um, You don't need to worry about having the tubing lower than the patient because the centrifugal pump generates suction, actually, and you can push the, put the pump head at any level related to the patient, which makes it a lot easier to uh, ship patients around. But what's um, unclear, even though I would say 99.9% of ECMO centers now use hollow fiber oxygenators, and well over 50% have switched now to centrifugal pumps. There really hasn't been good comparison studies to say that they're actually better. There there are two small studies that say, hey, we switched from a roller head uh, silicone system to a hollow fiber centrifugal system, and we use less blood products, and our patients did better. But they're very small, single center reports. There is a report coming out, um, or it may be out by now, from the ELSO registry in which they looked at centrifugal pump patients versus roller head patients. And truthfully, the centrifugal pump patients had more renal failure, had more hemolysis, had more hyperbilirubinemia than did the roller head uh, patients. Now, you can say, well, that's not a good study because they included some of the old centrifugal pumps that were probably more uh, thrombotic than some of the ones that we have now, but it does sort of point out that you know we're all switching to these things because theoretically we think they should be better, <clears throat> and everybody's bought into that. But there isn't a lot of data yet that really says how much better they are. You have alluded several times to the complications and the high complication rate. What are the complications that one? Um, is concerned about it in a patient on ECMO, and what are the current outcomes like? So, well, let's talk about outcomes first. So if you, if you look at the ELSO registry, which, you know, is a voluntary database that's collected uh, from folks that do ECMO on a lot of patients in the world, doesn't collect all of them. There's over 50,000 patients in there, and the overall survival for those patients is about 61%. If you break them down by uh, category, so if you look at neonates, which are, uh, which are defined as patients less than 31 days of age, there's about six to 800 neonates put on ECMO per year, and their overall survival is about uh, uh, 62 to 70% uh, percent depending on your, um, your uh, overall reason for going on ECMO. If you're a respiratory failure patient, about 75% of those patients get off. If you go on for neonatal cardiac failure, about 39% of those patients survive to discharge. And then um, 
if you look at another category that is relatively new in the ECMO world, this category of uh, resuscitation with ECMO during CPR, eCPR, that's a hot thing that's happened over the last few years. If you're a neonate, your chance of survival there is about 38%. If you're a pediatric patient, um, there's about 300 pediatric patients that are put on for respiratory failure per year, and their survival is about 57%. There's about... Um, about 1,500 uh, kids with cardiac disease that are put on per year, and uh, their overall survival is about 45%. And then in this eCPR category, there's been about 1,500 kids total that have been put on uh, with an overall survival of about 40%. And then certainly the smallest group, but the one that proportionally is the largest in terms of growth, is the adult population. So in the adult world, <clears throat> still we have now about 400 adults that are going on ECMO per year, which is about twice what it was before the uh, H1N1 epidemic in 2009. And about 50% of those patients survive. The adult and pediatric outcomes are actually almost the same, with the exception that uh, adults put on with uh, ECPR don't seem to have as good an outcome as the neonatal or the pediatric uh, populations. So given that um, patients probably of pretty much any age who are going on ECMO um, are being put on ECMO because they are not expected to survive. That sounds like overall 50 to 60 percent of them survive. So there's a considerable um, there's considerable mortality. But given that they were there was an expected nearly 100 percent mortality, a lot of them are surviving. Right, and I think the. The concern that a lot of us have is, um, you know, the neonatal population has done a pretty good job of following up some of these kids, a lot because they're, you know, they're in NICUs and they have NICU follow-up clinics and stuff. There isn't so much known about long-term outcome, especially in pediatric patients and adults. And I think in the future, this is something we really need to focus on. If you look at some of the outcome data that is uh, available, um, you know, Long-term morbidity is evident in uh, about 50% of the patients. Now, a lot of those are cardiac patients who may have um, underlying diseases which may relate to morbidity with or without ECMO. But certainly, uh, if you look at some of the articles that have come out recently on overall outcome, only about 50% of the kids are completely normal. So, so just to continue with that, so um, even though uh, there are, you know, up to 50% of the kids that have some abnormalities, when you look at gross, you know, really bad neurologic outcome or whatever, uh, the percentage of those patients is fairly small. And there was an interesting study that was just published last year, or earlier this year, I guess, actually, in which they compared patients who had been on ECMO, uh, these were cardiac ECMO patients, to patients with um, uh, other diseases. So when you looked at their physical uh, scores um, in terms of those parameters, there was a significant uh, difference in terms of the ECMO patients about, you know, their score was 42% and the uh, overall general U.S. population was about 53. And for the same uh, thing, if you looked at psychosocial uh, things, even though the ECMO population was a little bit lower, it didn't vary that much from the general population. But when you looked at other diseases that we would consider sort of maybe not so uh, unusual, um, things like uh, patients that had a Fontan or patients that had um, 
automatic defibrillators or whatever, there was really no difference um, in terms of the ECMO patients from those uh, populations. So, uh, you know, parents often report, you know, that the kids do have some uh, element of developmental delay. Uh, some of them may have speech problems. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, attention deficit disorder was found at least in um, in these cardiac ECMO folks to be prevalent in about 34% of the kids. Um, and while that may not seem like much of a deal, I suppose if you have a kid with an attention deficit disorder, that can get to be a problem uh, over time. But it is interesting that there is finally coming out some information, at least, about what kids are looking like on a long-term basis. You know, we used to think if you were a kid uh, out of the newborn period that we could assess a little bit that uh, sort of what, what you look like at discharge was what you're going to be like forever. And now that people are actually doing a little bit more intricate testing, they are finding that a lot of these kids end up having, especially school performance problems uh, later on. And then if you talk about uh, other complications, I mean, certainly, you know, the biggest bugaboo for extracorporeal support in all its forms is, uh, is bleeding and thrombosis. And uh, despite the fact that we think we're so much, you know, better at what we do, um, this is still a huge problem. Um, I actually am starting a, a project through uh, this collaborative pediatric critical care research network uh, that's funded by the NIH that we happen to be uh, one of the eight centers in, we're starting a project actually where we're gonna be collecting very intricate data on bleeding and thrombosis in patients that get ECMO, looking especially at, oh, what kind of equipment are you using? What kind of algorithms do you use for anticoagulation? What kind of patients do you have? How severe is their illness? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, because most of this data has come from the ELSO registry, which while it's valuable, doesn't contain a lot of real specific detail. Uh, and when you're trying to sort of drill down and see how we can make things better, you need to get more, some more specific information. You know, back in the days when you and I started doing ECMO, we all just used the activated clotting times, and that's how we monitored our heparin. Well, you know, now, just as we've learned a lot more about uh, technology, we've learned a lot more about the coagulation cascade, and now we have tests that we can monitor all these different factors, and, oh, by the way, we can replace the factors that are deficient. And so we have these very intricate algorithms in a lot of centers in which not only do we monitor the ACT, but we monitor PTs and PTTs, and we monitor anti-10A levels, and we monitor anti-thrombin-3 levels, and, or, and we monitor factor seven levels, and then we decide whether to replace all these factors. And while a lot of this really sounds smart, again, there isn't any data to show that um, folks that are doing more intricate monitoring or folks that are replacing anti-thrombin-3, that's a hot thing lately, um, it's, there's really no data to show that those kids are doing better or worse than patients that get uh, sort of what you would consider simplistic monitoring now just with an ACT. So a bunch of us have gotten together and have written a, a grant to sort of uh, look at that because I think if you look at the other big bugaboo for ECMO, it's always been cost, right? It's very mm -hmm. resource-heavy. Um, and now if you're throwing in things like antithrombin-3, which is quite expensive, and oh, by the way, it doesn't really turn out that it's uh, all that beneficial, 
and it may actually have some harm with it, should we really be doing this or not? So there is a little bit more interest, I think, uh, actually in um, not only answering these questions, but actually trying to get some funding for some of these questions, which haven't been really uh, very successful in terms of the NIH realm uh, in the past. And it seems like with the rise in excavorial techniques overall, that all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're right, we really need to look at this a little bit uh, more intricately. And so a lot of us are sort of jumping on the bandwagon to sort of help with that. Another issue that has been popping up in the literature recently is that of fluid balance in patients on ECMO and the use of renal replacement therapy. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, okay, so I will talk about it. I will tell you that there are zealots about this in both directions, um, and I am not one of them. So, uh, you know, I have the same problem with renal replacement in ECMO patients as I do with other patients. It's always hard for me to know when actual fluid resuscitation, which is needed for survival, um, ends and fluid overload starts, you know, and there are several uh, articles in the literature that say, you know, by day three, you know, you should try getting patients back to their dry rate. And, you know, if you have more than 10% fluid overload, you're going to do much poorly than people that don't. On the other hand, the argument is, well, maybe those patients were sicker to begin with, and maybe that's why you had to give them all that fluid. So having said that, I would say that many, I would almost say the majority of people actually um, do practice some type of fluid balance. Certainly, diuretics are um, the number one thing. I mean, you know, vitamin Lasix is given to everybody, although now even we have a Lasix shortage in the country, so who knows if we'll be able to use that. But um, And renal replacement is done very, very uh, frequently, especially after the first couple of days on ECMO. Um, you know, patients that get put on ECMO all get a SERS response uh, from the circuit itself, which causes, you know, an increase in the capillary leak that they may already have as part of their underlying disease. So they all do get puffy. They all do get um, edematous. And how hard you treat that uh, really is still uh, center uh, specific. But I would say the majority of folks tend to try and keep fluid balance within a reasonable range um, than not. And the fact that you can stick in a CRRT uh, circuit, which is, if you talk to renal folks, the optimal way to do it, not just to stick a hemofilter in line, um, the, the ease of which you can do that with the circuit makes it uh, not such a big deal. And the one thing that, that often uh, helps with is another thing that's very important for these patients is nutrition. And I think in a lot of patients in the past, you know, people would like uh, sort of restrict their nutrition because they were so fluid overloaded, we can't give them all this fluid. Well, when you have CRT on board, it doesn't really matter, right? You can give them extra calories because you can take off the extra fluid that goes with that with the CRT circuit. So I would say it's being done quite a bit, just like we do plasma for exchange on these patients. Sometimes we do plasmapheresis on these patients um, and, and that type of thing. So it is done probably, I would guess, in uh, quite a majority of patients. The, one of the problems with that that uh, has not been answered by the ELSO registry is there are a couple of questions on the ELSO registry that say, you know, did you use renal replacement 
and was it for creatinines greater than this or that or creatinines greater than three? But there isn't a really good um, uh, way to assess in there, did you use this only for fluid removal mm-hmm. or not, which I think would be really important because you can't really – there is still an uh, a decrease in survival in patients that have renal replacement within the ELSO registry itself. But, again, it's been very hard to tease out from that okay, these are the kids we just took fluid off of, and these are the kids that actually had, you know, renal mm-hmm. failure or mm-hmm. renal insufficiency of some sort, and how bad was that when you use these types of adjunct therapies. Are there any other issues you'd like to talk about with regards to ECMO? Yeah, I guess the one thing is um, to sort of let the world know that really <laughs> uh, one of the other big changes that's occurring in the uh, ECMO world right now is the move to keep patients awake. And certainly, if you look at our Swedish colleagues and our European colleagues, they've been saying this for years, that patients do better when they're awake and they can move around themselves and they can breathe spontaneously and all that. But there's been really a a real reluctance to adopt that philosophy here in the States. You know, most of these kids have been heavily sedated, some even neuromuscular blocked and that sort of thing. And so what we are really trying to push now is uh, the fact that we can keep them awake. And there are some great... uh, success stories um, now and uh, series that are coming out of patients who are on ECMO support from, you know, babies through adults who are, you know, wide awake, uh, that you can actually get them up and walking and stuff with the techniques that we're using now and the cannulation techniques that don't require big surgical procedures and such. And there is a thought that uh, by doing that, you are potentially decreasing a lot of the risks that go along with ECMO. You know, delirium is a big problem, and kids that have a lot of sedation aren't ECMO for a long time. Um, If you get patients up and moving, there is some good physiologic evidence that it's better for your lungs because when you're spontaneously breathing and moving, you move lymph and stuff out of your lungs better, and you may actually recover your lung function faster and that type of thing. And in terms of fluid overload, you know, when you're moving around your muscles and stuff, you don't have quite so much uh, dependent edema and stuff that uh, comes to be. So certainly we have, um, we've been slow to adopt this at my place too, and I'm considered an old dog in this <laughs> now. But, um, you know, we have gotten our last couple patients, yes, they have been wide awake. You know, we've gotten them up as far as sitting on the side of the bed and uh, playing with their iPads. But, um, you know, I think that that is sort of the wave of the future. People that are going to be up doing rehab, actually, on ECMO, waiting to recover. And the sidelight of that is also that there is no longer sort of a time limit that we give patients for ECMO. You know, it used to be two weeks and you're done. Mm-hmm. Now um, we just keep going until there's some complication that forces you to uh, take the patient off. Or um, since we now have the ability in many places to do uh, transplants of various sorts, you know, you either list them for a heart transplant or we actually just uh, – had our first successful experience with bridging somebody to a uh, lung transplant, uh, which I've never been successful with uh, in the past. And that uh, actually, that particular case is a good example of what ECMO has come to be. This was a patient that came to us very sick. We put her on ECMO. We got her woken up. We did all these things. It became very evident that she had end-stage lung disease from an autoimmune disease, and she was never going to come off the circuit, and we were not yet approved for pediatric uh, lung transplants here. So we actually um, sent her on ECMO 
to uh, Nationwide in Columbus. They came out and picked her up, and lo and behold, she got her lungs there, and she's off ECMO, and she's doing great. So a lot of the stuff I've been talking about sort of is culminating in the fact that we can now share a lot of stuff that we weren't able to share before. We can do a lot of things that we could never have done before. And the horizons in terms of who can we put on ECMO, how can we treat them, you know, you see these videos of patients walking down the hall, pushing their little ECMO circuit in front of them. And, you know, 10 years ago, people would have thought you were crazy, but that's certainly becoming sort of the uh, way the field is moving uh, right now. And if we can ever get anticoagulation and reducing bleeding and thrombosis really nailed, and I'm not sure that will ever happen, but if that does happen, you know, I do think this, you know, ECMO will be in the future just what CVVH is today. You know, back in the old days when you and I started, right, CVVH was a big deal. Uh-huh. You know, now you do it without even blinking. And I think ECMO is sort of moving in that direction. Well, that is really fascinating information you've given us today, Heidi. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for inviting me. We have been talking with Dr. Heidi J. Dalton from Phoenix Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona, to discuss extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. SCCM has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. Visit SCCM's online store at www.sccm.org store. For SCCM's logo apparel, visit www.sccm.org apparel. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.